Well, good morning. Glad that you are here. What an opportunity it's been for us to be able to worship together here as the church. It's good to be with you. And it's also good to continue in this study this uh, morning titled Across the Ages. The book of 2 Corinthians captures for us, as we heard last week as Pastor Tim kicked off this series, it captures a call to love others, to love one another, which can only be genuine and authentic if we first have got our vertical worship in place. I mean, may we and may this church, Harvest Bible Chapel of Peoria, grasp the invitation that God has given to us to worship Him as a timeless call upon each one of our lives. What a privilege that we have to come together here to celebrate and to make much of our God. You know, when we have our vertical worship in place, it allows us to horizontally deal with the realities of life that we will face as we walk with one another. You see, when we have our worship in place, our walk with others through life won't be without its problems. Every morning when you get up, you look in the mirror, part of the problem right there. That's the reality. But you know what, friends? When we have our vertical worship in place, when we are celebrating who our God is, it's amazing how we're able to walk through life in a God-honoring way as we walk with others through this crazy, at times, mixed-up world. Because when we're surrendered to God, He will give us the resources that we need in order to walk through life in a God-honoring way with others. And so our hope and our prayer and our desire as pastors and leaders of this church is that this church would be a healthy, on-fire, life-giving church that honors and glorifies God. And this series, Across the Ages, is, is a great series that allows us to understand what God's expectations are for us. You know, last week, Pastor Tim kicked off this series with the message titled, Live in His Comfort. And my hope and prayer is that this last week that you've been able to experience and embrace and understand in even a greater way what it means to live in His comfort. That no matter what you've had to walk through this last week, you've been able to embrace the reality of living in His comfort. Well, today we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 22 of, first, uh, of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles, turn there with me if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. This morning we're going to consider how to live honestly and hopefully in a relationship with others. I mean, isn't that what we all want? I mean, when we are living in, in relationships that is chaotic and difficult and, and filled with all sorts of challenges and troubles, I mean, our heart's desire is truly to, have a, to live in relationship honestly and hopefully with others. And that happens with the call to the first point, to be honest and God-honoring as you live before others. Be honest and God-honoring as you live before others in verses 12 through 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me set the context here for you. Um, Paul had gotten word that there were some at the church in Corinth that were upset with him that he hadn't acted in an honest, in a God-honoring way toward them. And so he writes in verses 12 through 14, he says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, 
that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledged, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Well, here in these first couple of verses, um, Paul hasn't mentioned what the problem is that was uh, precipitated by some of those at the church in Corinth. And as I said, there were some in Corinth who just didn't like Paul, didn't like his message, felt that he had acted in a dishonest way towards them, and somehow Paul had gotten word that this is what was going on back at the church in Corinth. He wrote 1 Corinthians and sent that letter there and spent time with them, but in the interim, here he was, and as the church continued to grow and walk through its challenges and all of those opportunities that God had given to the church, there, there were some there who just were a bit upset with the Apostle Paul because he had made plans to come and visit them, but for whatever reason wasn't able to get back there. And so we're going to look at all of those details in just a little bit. But at the first reading of the text, this is, to us, may seem a bit trivial as you sort of work your way through those verses that I read for you. And it doesn't seem to have much practical application for us, but as we dig a little bit deeper into the text this morning, it has some great insights and is a powerful model and reminder to each one of us for how we should deal with misunderstandings in a God-honoring way because this is going to happen. You know, Paul, in his ministry, was often under attack and under criticism by many, which you would expect from those who were outside the church, from the established religious community, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders who didn't like the name of Jesus Christ and didn't like his message. And he would have expected that those attacks would come from outside the church. But what was so distressing to Paul is that it was coming from within the church, the criticism. It come from within the church that, that this man had, had planted and, and prayed for and loved so dearly and sacrificed so much. There were some people in the church who, who just didn't like Paul. They didn't like his leadership. They didn't like his teaching. They claimed that he had broken his promise when he told them that he would try to visit them on a certain trip, which he mentioned back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and just flip one page back to understand what Paul was saying to the church at Corinth in his last correspondence with them. In 1 Corinthians 16, beginning at verse 5, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. He says, I intended to pass through Macedonia and, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, but I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in emphasis until Pentecost. You see, Paul's plans got changed. You know, today we get a little upset when our plans have gotten changed. An airline reservation has been canceled. A a taxi hasn't showed up on time. An Uber hasn't been there when it's supposed to be there. And we're late for an appointment. But I can't even begin to, to imagine the, the difficulties that, 
that Paul experienced, that anyone experienced back in that time with the challenges of travel. And we're talking about overseas travel and how that must have been so incredibly difficult. But here the Apostle Paul said, I am going to do my very best to get back to you so that I can be a blessing to you, to spend time with you. And notice how he qualifies that, though, as he says, if the Lord permits. So his plans got changed. He wasn't able to get back to Corinth as he had intended. And so there were some in the church that were predisposed to having a critical, suspicious spirit. That when Paul's plans got changed and he didn't show up when he said that he was going to show up, they accused him of saying one thing and doing another, of lying to them, of being deceitful. And they then used his change of plans to cast doubt on his whole ministry and the message of Christ in the cross. And we might think to ourselves, what is going on? His plans got changed. But you see, there were those folks within the church who had this evil predisposition against Christ and the message of Christ in the cross. And they wanted to use Paul's change of plans to attack him. You know, it's interesting that Paul begins by making plain to the church at Corinth that his conscience is clear in the whole matter of his travel plans. You know, he says, for our boast is this. That's how he begins. Or, or Paul's confident public declaration, he is saying, the testimony of our conscience, and he says our conscience because he was including Timothy and Silvanus who were with him as witnesses, as a testimony to what he was saying. Paul goes on and he says that we behaved in the world with simplicity, holiness, godly sincerity towards you. You see, he wants the church at Corinth to understand that his personal actions, as he checks his own heart, no matter how they may have been perceived by others, what he did or didn't do by way of travel plans, he stands clear and faultless before God, openly to others, in, he says, his own conscience. Did a little study on the conscience this last week, and it's interesting. The conscience, it's, it's a remarkable thing. And we all have one, and it's God-given. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says that God has placed, he has put eternity in the hearts of man. He's put eternity in the hearts of man. God has placed an awareness of who he is and of his moral law in the hearts and the minds of each and every one of us. It's there. The conscience is the ability to sense in your own heart if there's sin there, if there's something wrong there, if there's guilt or shame. The conscience is really a, it's, a, it's truly a wonderful gift from God that is given to us. It's like the gift of pain, if you think about it. What's the purpose of pain? Well, the purpose of pain is to warn you that you're hurting your body. So you don't continue to injure or maybe eventually kill yourself. Well, the gift of conscience warns you that you might be killing or damaging your own soul. Your conscience, it either affirms 
that what you're doing is right or it accuses and warns you that what you're doing is wrong. You see, as a Christian, as followers of Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, your conscience becomes increasingly enlightened and informed to lead, guide, and direct you in your relationships with others that enables you to live in an honest and a God-honoring way. Unless, unless your conscience has become seared because of constant sin, rebellion, and ungodliness. Paul wrote to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, and he talked about how those individuals who live such ungodly lives, whose conscience has been seared and just done away with. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, where we're all very familiar with what takes place in Romans chapter 1, where what we have there is how, how humanity, because of the conscience having been seared and, and the inability or the desire to no longer acknowledge God, in Romans 1, where good is perceived as evil and evil as good and their conscience has become anesthetized, numb to the things of God. But Paul says, my conscience is clear in relationship to what I'm being accused of here. He said, my conscience is clear. And so when your actions, when your words, when your motives are misunderstood, has that ever happened to anybody here? No? Yeah, it's happened to all of us where our motives, words are misunderstood or our plans are, are misunderstood. You know, when somebody misjudges your actions, when somebody misjudges my actions, words or motives, there's a couple of things that we need to ask ourselves. I'm sure Paul was asking himself the exact same thing. And here's three things that you should ask yourself. If you're going to live honest and God-honoring with and before others. First of all, you ask yourself if you've been misjudged, if your motives have been questioned. Does my conscience bother me about any part of this misunderstanding? Is there anything legitimate in my own conscience that, that condemns me or accuses me of, of the misunderstanding or the, or the issue that we're dealing with? Second, is there anything in the misunderstanding that I intentionally did wrong? Did I shade the truth a little bit? And third, is there anything about the misunderstanding that God himself would condemn? Three great questions to always ask ourselves as we're living in relationship to other people. Does my conscience bother me about this? Is there anything in the misunderstanding that I intentionally did wrong? Was I a part of the problem? And is there anything about the misunderstanding that God would condemn? You know, friends, if there is, then your first step is to confess it to the Lord. Acknowledge it to those involved. And admit that you did something wrong. It's swallow your pride and go make it right. It's a part of healthy relationships. It's a part of living in the kind of honest and God-honoring relationships. Now, as we think about misunderstandings and difficulties and accusations that may be coming across, there may be elements about the misunderstanding that you're facing that you feel justified in. But there may also be parts of it when you, try, when you check your own heart where you have to admit that you did do something wrong. You may have maybe lost your temper in the midst of the misunderstanding. You may have said something cruel or unkind to somebody. 
You may have even retaliated in some way. If that were the case, then you need to make it right before God and with those involved. To have, as Paul said, a clear conscience. A clear conscience. And what a wonderful thing it is to be able to lay your head down on the pillow at the end of the day with a clear conscience. Knowing that things are good between you and God and others. So how did Paul act? How did he behave in his relationships with the church at Corinth and really with, with others? In three ways. He said, verse 12, simplicity, godly sincerity, and with the grace of God. What an awesome model for walking through life with others. In simplicity, in godly sincerity, and with the grace of God. The whole idea of simplicity here is, is, is Paul, as he approached people and as he ministered to the churches, as we walk through life with one another. The idea here is not being complicated. It's not being full of pretense. It's being down to earth. It's the whole idea of simplicity. And then the whole idea of sincerity, and this is an incredibly unique word. Sincerity, which is freedom from deceit. Hypocrisy. Paul was earnest. The root of this word sincerity comes from an ancient word that was used to declare that a particular item was without fault, that it was without defect. Back in ancient time, potters would make pottery, and in the process of making pottery, when the pottery was fired, it would sometimes crack. And what some of the dishonest potters would do is they would try to sell the, the item that they made is that they would take some wax and they'd rub it on it and they would rub it in so tight and clear that as you looked at it, you could see that there was, it didn't appear that there was a crack in the pottery and it would be sold as, as genuine without defect. But then when you held the piece of pottery up to the light, you could see the crack in it. And Paul is saying that we need to live our lives with sincerity, without deceit, without cracks as we deal and walk through life with others. And then he says, thirdly, with the grace of God. Man, Paul says with simplicity, godly sincerity, and with the grace of God. Wow. Grace, God giving you what you don't deserve. God giving me what I don't deserve. How well do we do it relationships where we give people the benefit of the doubt. How often are we suspicious of people's actions and motives? We ought to give people the benefit of the doubt to, to give them what they don't deserve until such time that their actions indicate that we should be treating them differently or working with them differently. What a model for walking through life and with others. And that's how Paul walked through life. That's how Jesus walked through life with others as well. With simplicity Godly sincerity and with the grace of God. What an awesome model for walking through life with others. Now notice verses 13 and 14 as, as Paul continues to write there. He says, therefore, we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope that you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Here Paul is now going to do his best his very best, to clear up the confusion and the misunderstanding. And his hope and his prayer is that as he explains things to the church at Corinth, 
that there will be a restored mutual sense of pride, respect, and understanding for one another. You know, his heart's intention is in the end, as he says, on the day of our Lord Jesus and on that day when all of our motives are made clear and known that there would be a mutual love and respect and admiration through this. You see, Paul wasn't going to ignore the problem. I love the personality of Paul who just dealt with things as they needed to be dealt with. He wasn't going to ignore the problem. He's going to address it here in, in, in greater depth in just a moment. But talk about some great lessons for living life with other people, but also for leadership, especially in the church. Leadership in the church, it requires that problems get addressed and not ignored. I, I mean, just think about your own home as, as you're dealing with issues and realities and struggles and Ignoring the problems don't solve anything. And it's so true in the church as well. That we don't ignore, but we address. And the reason is that as pastors and elders, the reality is that we will stand before God one day and we will have to answer to him as to how well we cared for, shepherded, and led the church. We talk a little bit about this in Discover Harvest each time. We talk about the governance and the structure of Harvest Bible Chapel, that this is an elder-led church. And the reality is that we will be asked on that day a question that you yourselves will never be asked. And the question is, how well did you care and shepherd this church? That's a question that we as pastors and elders will have to answer. And we take that serious. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, as those who will have to give an account... We're going to have to give an account because in Acts chapter 20, verses 27 to 31, Paul was giving the Ephesian elders as he was leaving Ephesus some final words as to why problems cannot be ignored in the church. I would encourage you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, verse 20 starting at verse 27, as I said, here was Paul Final words to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, Paul says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. From A to Z, he shared the whole counsel of God. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves. This is words to the pastors and elders of this church in Ephesus. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To do what? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Care for, watch over the bride. I know that after my departure, notice what's going to happen. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You realize that there is an intent on the part of the enemy to come in and to destroy and kill he says, not only will there be those from without who will come in to try to destroy, disrupt the life of this church or the church, but he also goes on to say, and from among you, from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things for the purpose of drawing away the disciples after them. Therefore, and what's the therefore? Therefore, What's the therefore, therefore? 
be alert, remembering, Paul says, that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You see what's going on here, friends? God has, the bride, the church, that was purchased with Christ's own blood, God's given to the elders, the pastors, the leadership of this church, the incredible responsibility to care for, to watch over, to protect. And Paul had the same intention. He was not going to ignore the problems because they are coming from without and they will also come from within. And so Paul wasn't going to ignore the problem. And we in leadership here at Harvest Bible Chapel of Peoria also do not ignore the problems. Why? Because problems, when left unchecked, turn into even greater problems in chaos. Because the enemy's intent is to kill and destroy. He's a liar and he's going to do what he can do to disrupt and destroy the work that God is doing here. And so we have to be careful. All of us have to be careful. All of us have to be vigilant in this whole process of, of our relationships with one another. And it's interesting how often many of the problems come as a result of, of strained, difficult relationships when they're not dealt with and handled in a God-honoring way. Unfortunately, there are some that adopt the attitude that says, I'm, not, I'm just going to forget the problem. I'm going to ignore it. And I'm going to hope that it just disappears. But the problem with that is it usually doesn't disappear. Misunderstandings can lie hidden in the heart, and you may think it's forgotten and gone, but actually it is just festering away, smoldering like a fire that refuses to go out. And then at some point, something unexpectedly happens, a memory, an emotion, an event happens, and it bursts into flames. I think you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you get angry at somebody, and you hardly realize why, but it's because something has been left unresolved. You know, everywhere in the Word of God, we are taught that we ought not let things lie unsettled. You know, if we've been sinned against, if we've experienced a hurt, or we feel someone is upset with us, then we have to do something about it. Now, I'm not talking about preferences where, because I don't like the color of your shirt or the style of the dress, that I get all upset and bothered and, and I feel as if I've been sinned against. I'm talking about being sinned against or hurt. We need to do something about it. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he says, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You understand what he's saying there? If there's issues that are unresolved before you engage in worship, get things right. Get things confessed. Get clean before God and with others. I love what Romans chapter 12, 18 says. As Paul writes, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, he says, live peaceably with all. And so how are you doing with that? Think about the relationships that you have right now with others within this church or in the community. How are you doing with that? Are you doing all you can to live at peace as much as it would depend upon you? Are there issues that have been unresolved and haven't been addressed? Lean into those. Get them cared for. You see, because clean relationships are so critically important. Because when they are neglected, 
The result is strife, division, hurt, pain are the result. And if left unresolved in the church, they can be destructive. And no one benefits from that. And God is not honored and his name is not lifted up. And so how, and so now Paul in the next section of scripture as we move on to point two, explains what the trouble was and how he was not, I would emphasize, not a man of deception or dishonesty. I mean, he wasn't a man that talked out of both sides of his mouth. He was a man who said what he meant and meant what he said, which leads us to our second point as we live honestly and hopefully through life, and that is let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's as simple as that. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul writes, he says, because, the transitional statement here, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. That was his heart's desire. So that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me, send me on my way. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Interesting. The problem. The problem was that Paul had every intention to visit the church at Corinth. And that's what he said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He wanted to bless them with words of encouragement, instruction, and fellowship. A second experience of grace, he said, When he made the plans, they were made with the purest of intentions. As he said, no vacillating on his part. No duplicity. No saying yes, but meaning no. But his plans got changed. And he wasn't able to visit them. Now, to us, hey, travel plans getting changed, so trivial. I mean, particularly when you think of the time in which Paul lived and how transportation and communication was so difficult and hard. Seems so trivial. And so why didn't Paul just simply say, I didn't come and here's the reason why? He doesn't do that. Because the issue is not why he didn't come or why his plans changed. The issue here is his integrity was being questioned. Some were saying that, man, if Paul can't be trusted to keep his appointments... If he can't be trusted to do what he says about his travel plans, then why in the world would you believe what he preaches about Christ and the cross? That's at the heart of the issue here. Do you sense the subtlety of what the enemy is attempting to do? To disrupt and destroy the church and destroy Paul's integrity? It's so subtle. You see, there was a deliberate intention... There was an evil motivation on the part of some in the church that did not like Paul. They didn't like his message, and they were trying to rally others to their cause to think wrongly about Paul. And they used that as an opportunity to question his character and his integrity and to accuse him that he was no different than the way in which the world acts. And how does the world act? They often say one thing and do another and do it for selfish reasons and benefits. And Paul called that according to the flesh. And that's not who Paul was and how he worked and lived his life. Notice verse 18. It says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not, not been 
yes and no. The point is, say what you mean, mean what you say. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, let, your, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this, Jesus said, comes from the evil one. You see, friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must learn to keep our word. When we say yes to someone and something, we need to mean it. When we say no to someone or something, mean it. Look at verse 19. Paul said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. See, I remember a parenting moment, as I'm sure you might have as well. There was a moment in time when my kids got so frustrated with me. I'm sure we've been there. Because I said yes to something that they asked about, and then I said no about it. Then I said yes, and then I said no. There's nothing more frustrating in relationships for anyone when we are not clear and we're communicating a yes and a no at the same time. That makes relationships incredibly difficult and so hard to manage. I mean, being indecisive when when we need to be clear can, can be fatal. I mean, someone has said that we need to be decisive, right or wrong, make a decision because the road of life is paved with flat squirrels who couldn't make a decision. I mean, have you seen the commercial? And I'm not sure what commercial it is, but two squirrels running back and forth on the road and the driver's trying to avoid the squirrels and so it ends up, the driver ends up in the ditch and then the two squirrels give each other high fives. Yeah. I mean, the road of life is paved with flat squirrels who couldn't make a decision. I tried to work hard to fit this thing in. You know, in order for us to live honestly, and hopefully with others in authentic Christ-honoring ways. May our yes always be a genuine yes and our no be a genuine no. You know, let's say what we mean and mean what we say and not masking our conversations in a worldly manner. But speak what, God, what is God-honoring and respectful to and about others. And then finally, how can we live honestly and hopefully in our relationships with others? Well, that happens as we, third, enjoy living the yes life that Jesus has promised. The yes life that Jesus has promised. See, Paul is basically saying that no Christian should be giving a yes and a no commitment. Why is that? Because that's contrary to a genuine, authentic Christian life. Because that's contrary to the very nature of God. God's not fickle. He's not inconsistent in his thinking. His words, his actions, when God says yes to a promise, then it's an eternal yes. He will never take it back. When God says no, he means no. He never says yes and means no or says no but means yes. Look at verse 20. For all the promises of God, how many? All the promises of God find their yes in him. And this is amazing. 
all of God's promises, promises of blessing and peace and joy and love and goodness and purpose and fellowship, forgiveness and strength and hope, a kingdom, heaven, salvation, sanctification, glorification, we could go on. All the promises of God are an absolute, definitive, certain yes. Everything God has ever promised is a yes and made possible in whom? In Christ. In Him, they are all yes. Jesus Christ is the yes to all of God's promises. We can have absolute confidence in the fact that what God promises, He will deliver on. Amen? And we never, ever need to wonder about His faithfulness to His Word, to the promises that He's made. Hence, look at verse, the latter part of verse 20. That is why it is through him that we utter our what? Our amen to God for his glory. The word amen literally means so be it, right on, I agree, that's true. And we so love it around here at Harvest when we hear amen. Amen? amen. Because you're in agreement with what God's word says and the truth that is there. And then look at verses 21 and 22. We have several more promises, four incredible works of God in our lives. They're listed for us where God is saying, yes, I will. You can bank on this. It says, first of all, and it is God who, who establishes us with you in Christ, who has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, all promises from God. Four amazing truths of God's work in our lives. Paul is saying, this is what we have in common with the Corinthian church. This is what we have in common here as fellow believers of Jesus Christ. This is what unites us in Christ. This is what makes us family. Let's look at the four truths of God's work in our lives. First, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. You know, when we have confessed Christ as our Savior, it is God who establishes us, puts us on a firm, stable foundation with and in Christ. This is the work of God. The word established carries this, this legal emphasis, a guarantee that would confirm that a sale was valid, that it was lawful, it was legal, it was binding. You know, Paul's using the word to express that it is God himself who has guaranteed the salvation of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. You have the guarantee of the God of the universe that you are secure in Jesus Christ because he has established us. Secondly, another work of God in our lives is that he has anointed us. Anointed us. The idea of anointing has the idea of, of a commissioning for special service. In the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, the kings were anointed for their unique calling to be representatives of God. God's anointing upon our lives, upon your life, means that he's setting you apart for a special service to be his representative. And it's your opportunity to represent the person of Jesus Christ and to proclaim, serve, and worship him in the home, the workplace, the school, wherever it is. God has established you. He has anointed you. But then also, also, he has put his seal on us. So what does that mean? What does the seal mean? It means that 
You belong to Jesus Christ. You are claimed by him. You see, in ancient times, they would put a couple of drops of soft wax on a, on a sealed document. And then they'd press a stamp into the wax indicating the ownership or to whom that document was to be rep- sent to, delivered to. And no one could open that document except the one to whom it was intended for. That's the seal. Stamped on your heart. Stamped on your life that you are his. You're his. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says, and I love this. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, Paul says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Wow. You see, friends, God is saying, you're mine. He says, you're mine. He says, you are my possession. You are marked with the ownership of the king of the universe. That's huge. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's ownership. That's possession. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Not greater than some in some areas, but greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then this incredible statement Jesus made, I and the Father are one. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you have God's permanent seal on your life. You are His, marked for life. Amen? It's yours. And then Paul adds to help us further understand what it means to live the yes life that Jesus promised us, he says, and he has given us his spirit into our hearts as a guarantee. Wow. I mean, we have the Holy Spirit in our lives as the pledge, as the deposit, as the down payment for promised future glory and inheritance that will be paid in full. So friends, what promises do you need today? What adjustments in your relationships need to be managed? Are you living a life of simplicity and transparency and authenticity? Are you living life with godly sincerity? Are you living life with the grace of God in your relationships? What do you need today? What do you need from him? that you can leave here this morning with a greater sense of the awe and the majesty of the God of the universe for everything that he has given to you because you have been marked. You are his. And we can celebrate that. Would you pray with me?